My name is Hein Johansen and this is The Wine World. Dirk Nietbord is with us here on The Wine World. Welcome. It's a pleasure. It's fantastic. Would you start to tell us a bit about uh, Portugal and, uh, and the wines there? Well, you know, I, I have a Dutch passport, um, but I'm the fifth generation in Portugal, born in Portugal. Uh, so I feel Portuguese, but I don't look Portuguese. So I'm a little bit of a European mess. But my heart is in Portugal and I love the country. And um, it, it has a huge potential, not only for wines, but uh, food, weather, vegetables, tourism. The sky is the limit. And of course, when we talk of Portugal, we talk of Douro, which uh, I can't say politically correct that uh, it's the most beautiful wine area in the world, but um, it is. There there are a lot of uh, special grapes that you see in Portugal that you don't see anywhere else. Yeah, well, Portugal is, is probably the richest country in autochthonous uh, grape varieties. And in Portugal, there's, I think, over 300. And in the Douro alone, um, there's 85 Authorized. You've been credited with uh, being the one that sort of started uh, the red wine production in Douro. Well, you know, in the past, uh, there was one priority, and that was port. So everything was organized to make the port first, and then with the leftovers, someone did a little bit of wine. Of course, the exception <clears throat> is Barca Velha from Ferreirinha, which started in 1953, I think. And they consistently made what was considered the Vega Sicilia of Portugal, or the most famous red wine. Um, then Quinta do Coto started in the 80s, and uh, that was it. Uh, there was little being made. And when I started making red wine, people laughed at me and thought I was crazy. Apparently, they still think I'm crazy. But uh, it's interesting how... Uh, the situation changed. I mean, in a way, let's say the Doro produced about 100,000 pipes uh, and uh, maybe 1,000 of wine uh, as DOC doc Doro. Uh, and today, if we assume that uh, we make 100,000 pipes in the, in the Doro, uh, there's about 75,000 pipes being made of DOC wine, white and red. Uh, so it's it's a dramatic change, and, and in, in a way, it's unthinkable today to think of the Dodo without the wine side. But it's a reality. Uh, it's a young reality. Uh, but the amazing thing about the Dodo is it's 45,000 hectares in total, so it's quite big. And not comparable with uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy. Uh, the vineyards go from 80 to 800 meters, north, south, east, west exposures, and 85 different varieties. So what is great for port is not necessarily the best for making a white wine or a red wine. So we do know where the vineyards are for the port, and we're trying to find out. Because in my opinion, uh, my colleagues don't seem to agree a lot with my idea, but the best vineyards for port are not the best for wine. So what I'm looking for is north-facing, high-altitude uh, vineyards. Even the varieties are not necessarily the best for port and for wine. So this is what we have been working on, and... I think the sky is the limit. Uh, I think the Doro has a huge potential for everything. Talking about the Bacavella being the Vega Cecilia of uh, Portugal, uh, I read somewhere that uh, Michael Broadbent once said that your Robustus 1990 was the Latour of Portugal. Yeah, well, that was a very funny evening. Uh, my mother in the morning, she asked me, is it true that Michael Broadbent is coming and you didn't invite your father for dinner? And I said, yes. 
why don't you invite your father? I said, because I don't want him to destroy my whole evening. Um, but I hear you're going to the theater after dinner. Why don't you send him to my house after dinner? And by that time, uh, we will be drinking port and then it should be fine. And so he came when we were drinking the Robustus 90 and... My father was a bit unfriendly and only wanted to drink beer. And, um, well, when I poured him a little bit of the Robustus, he very, yeah, unpolitely said, well, your grandfather would love this. It really stinks. Uh, it's really horse uh, shit and that kind of thing. And, um, and Michael was very, um, well, you know, very English. And then he said, Rolf, but this is the Latour of Portugal. This is amazing. This is the best Portuguese wine I ever had. And my father didn't really give a shit. But, but we, we did drink a vintage 45 afterwards, and then everything was fine. Mm. And this 90 Robustus is, is getting better and better. In fact, I had four pipes of it. And uh, when I went to Australia and came back, uh, my father had given three of those pipes, uh, pipes to the workers for drinking. <clears throat> so it was... It was a difficult birth, this wine. Your father wasn't really... You were the one who started with, with making wine in a serious note. Yes. Yeah, yeah. My father... Well, you know, uh, one of the reasons that really got me hooked on the potential of the Doru was one liter bottle that our German importer gave me uh, from 1938. And it said on the label, handwritten, consumo, which means table wine, 1938. And I asked my father about it, and he said, oh, well, yes, your grandfather did that. And I always liked showing it to the French because... They thought it was better than Bordeaux. And then I wanted to open it because a friend of ours was his birth year and birthday in 1938. And, and so my father didn't want me to open it, uh, but I, I'm a bit stubborn and I wanted to taste it. And it was incredible. I think we have one bottle left. Uh, all of the bottles I have had were incredible. The last one I think I drank with uh, here in, in Bergen. You've started uh, some production in the Mosel Valley as well with your son and with Philip Ketten. Would you talk a bit about that? Somehow it had to be. Um, my big love it was always Mosel. Uh, Wilhelm Haag is, is like my guru and my spiritual father. <clears throat> he taught me the incredible lightness of being, the elegance, uh, low alcohol, acidity, um, in the beginning, I was much more interested in just heavy, sweet dessert wines. And um, he forced me to try his little cabinets and spätlis and so on. And uh, the truth is that my great love today is is this category, the cabinet and spätlis. And I went to see Ganova in uh, Jura in 2012. And, uh, and afterwards, I went to see Philip. And uh, when I tasted the, the wines from 2012, uh, there was one barrel in particular that I thought, wow, this is incredible. And so I bought that barrel. And this is how FIU 2012 started. And uh, we kept on keeping aging the wines, fermenting in Fuda uh, with no sulfur in the beginning and just a little bit of sulfur at the end or at bottling. And uh, we liked the wines more and more. And, and then someday we created the company FIU. The label was also 
a long, difficult birth, but uh, I love the labels. They they are very different from anything else. And But, you know, many times when you do something which is not following anybody, but creating something, it takes time. And uh, one of the great things about FIO is we learn that we, if we give time to the wines, uh, it's very rewarding and they give you back a lot of good stuff. That has been sort of the story of your winemaking career, doing something that nobody else has done and then running with it and, and making it good. Well, yes, uh, in a way, uh, there are some examples of things that did not exist and, and then suddenly it looked like it looks all wrong, like the wines in Bayrada we are doing or the Charme. <clears throat> but uh, in the end, it proves that maybe it's not that wrong and something good comes out. The names, maybe especially the Charme and the Cochet, it seems very Burgundy-esque in the names. Well, I, I, I must confess that um, many times it's it's looking for inspirations or drinking great wines from around the world that inspire me in in some sort of direction and Redoma white in the beginning was clearly an effort of making a want to be white burgundy uh, today Redoma reserva it's Redoma reserva it's it's got his own style and it's not trying to copy anything or anybody uh, having said that kosh <clears throat> is again a little bit inspired uh, in Coche du Riz, obviously, um, and Burgundy. But even there, uh, there is something very Burgundish about it. But um, I think as it goes, we will find our way and, and in the end make something which is more the instinct and the area, the character of the area, than just a mere copy of something else. Port wine is very traditional in this style. Uh, do you still find room to uh, innovate or make something new in the port wine? Let's not forget that we are 180 years old. We know where the port vineyards are, and I don't think we will make a big revolution. It's more the other way around. It's a fine-tuning. And, and for me, the best example is the perfection of uh, 2017 vintage, which I consider to be the best wine I have made which is a bit boring because I have said that about 2005, 2011, 15. But I'm very confident in what I'm saying. And, and basically, I think that as much as I do like 2005, 2011 is maybe better, even though I still think that five is my favorite. Uh, 15 is, is very much in the same line as 17. And, and 17 is, is really a culminating point of getting everything right in the perfect right year so uh, it's not only us who made something good it was nature helped totally in fact uh, the english houses seem to compare it to 1945 and they have those track records and it's very funny that i now understand uh, the ports from 1945 much better because of the 2017 because 45 was always considered a very hot year but that's not the point that makes it so great, because there are other hot years like 2009 and 11. Uh, now, the great thing was that it was very hot the whole year long. The yields were very low, but during the harvest, it was never exceedingly hot. It was even cold at night. And so you have an element which is untypical for us in the Dodo, which is a lot of acidity. 
2019 promises to be also very interesting. I don't think it will be maybe as good or as fantastic as 17, but the factor color and acidity make it very special. So while with the wine, it's a revolution because we didn't know what to do and how to do it. And there was no tradition. We didn't even know which vineyards were better or which varieties. So we we have to experiment everything. And, and I think 30 years down the road, now we seem to know a little bit better how to do it and from where and what we want to do. With port is an evolution and attention to detail. And basically, while I think my colleagues are trying to get better machines and better extraction methods and better modern vineyards, um, I'm actually going back to the roots and trying to understand what my grandfather did and how the old people work, how they looked after the vineyards. Uh, and that's maybe the part that interests me the most is the old-fashioned viticulture uh, that I seem to like a lot more than the modern viticulture. You said earlier that you would look for northern-facing vineyards for your wines and then southern-facing vineyards for your reds. Is you you look for for uh, hotter vineyards, is that is that a point in, in making port wine? Even there, I have a different opinion from all my colleagues. It seems to me that everybody's looking for big ripeness, so a lot of heat and south-facing vineyards. I'm not looking for over-ripeness at all. And so the picking time is very important for me, so I pick a lot earlier than anybody else in the Douro, also for port. And we avoid over-ripe grapes, so... We in in really hot years we even take the overripe grapes out and separate them because I don't want this pruny overripe character in my wine. So even there, I'm I'm much more looking for precision of tannin, uh, fresh acidity, which in the port is not so important as in the red wine. Uh, but still, in my head, uh, 2017 is a great year because of the balance of the tannins and the acidity that you don't have like in 2009 or 11. Would you tell us a bit about how you go about in making port wine? The first important thing is uh, we work with very, very old wines. So the, the youngest vineyards we use, for instance, for vintage port is, I would say, like 80 years old. <clears throat> so it's traditional farming, many varieties co-planted. Then the picking is very, very important. So you don't want to pick it too early or too late. So we are looking really for the right moment, which is a bit later than for a red wine. But usually we, we like to pick at 13 alcohol, maybe 14, but nothing really above that. Then we do everything in Lagage when we talk about vintage port, 100% with the stems. And the the ritual of actually the treading with the feet is is not folklore. It's, it's not just for the tourists. It's actually heavy, heavy work. And there is a logic behind it. And to simplify the explanation, the first two hours are very hard and methodical because basically you want to destroy all the grapes. And the second two hours, you have to move around. So the second two hours are not for breaking the grapes. It's for actually get movement and extract as much as possible. While we don't want to extract as much as possible with red wines, because we have a lot of time and I don't like extracting, with port you don't have a lot of time because two, three, four days later you you press it and put the alcohol to stop the fermentation. So it's totally the opposite of, of uh, the red wines. 
then in, in a year like 17, when you have perfect fruit, what we do is we, we, after the pressing, we open the cake and put it back into the press. And so we press it a second time, where, which is a, really a pain in the ass. It's a lot of work for maybe 100 liters that you get, but they are pure gold. Uh, because you really, if if everything that you have in the press is perfect, you will have the most perfect wine. And it's not really over-extracted. Or it is, but it's okay because everything is perfect. And so you get a lot of color, a lot of tannin, but a lot of extract as well. And those 100 liters make a big difference in a, in, in a small quantity of port. Would you... Talk a bit about your ideas on terroir, because I think a lot of your wines are, are blended wines. Uh, well, um, the first essence of a good blender is the respect for the terroirs and understanding them. So I am old-fashioned and I come from the Douro, and so we think that the ultimate perfect wine is a blend and always better than a single vineyard. Having said that... Uh, what makes certain single vineyards particularly interesting is the character they have. And sometimes it's maybe not better, but it's more interesting to have that character separated from the blend. And we have a, one example, with, which is not a property, is really one vineyard called Pishka, uh, which we do put quite a lot of it into the blend, but not everything. And then we bottle part of it separately. It has its own character, and it's interesting if you if I give you seventy samples from um, seventeen, uh, it's very easy to recognize which one is Pishka. So, the sheer character uh, is is the important or the interesting thing about that uh, vineyard, and that's why we keep part of it separately. You said that you had several vintages now for the last. 15 20 years or so that has been the best uh, vintage that you've made would you say that you're in a sort of golden age for winemaking in the Doro now I would clearly say that yes I think maybe I don't agree with the direction that my colleagues are going but I think everybody is more interested in making the vintage better and not just making quantity so if you would look at data from the 80s how much Taylors, Dows, everybody were making. Compared to today, you will probably find out that uh, a lot less is being bottled as vintage. Technically speaking, I think uh, people are really trying to make better quality. I'm not sure that everybody's going in the right direction, or at least not in the direction that I like. Uh, some colleagues are going very much for the overripe, big, heavy, juicy, pruny character, which I don't particularly agree. Um, but um, I think in general, it's it's um, it's also interesting to note that the English houses were clearly better than most of the other houses. And uh, in our days, I think uh, there's a big change from the Portuguese houses uh, making much better vintage than they used to. So it's it's a very positive improvement, yeah. In a lot of areas, there has become a large and larger fear in Europe for the climate change. And especially, for instance, in Bordeaux, they've uh, allowed grapes like uh, Torontés or Touriga National now in, in the mix of Bordeaux. Do you share some of those fears for the dual part as well? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that there is a climate change. That's quite easy to observe. What it exactly means for the future 
is a big question mark. But I think the the areas that are suffering, suffering is the wrong word, and noticing the climate change in a heavier way are those that are on the border of good and bad. So Mosul, Germany in general, um, Burgundy, maybe even Bordeaux, <clears throat> they, they are having to learn with a new reality, uh, which in the positive sense um, allows them to make much more and more vintages better than in the past, particularly Mosul, I would say. But they have to cope with it because uh, the greatness of their wines were the limitations. And uh, if they don't watch out and if they don't know how to handle the situation, I think the wines will be less perfect in the future. But then again, higher vineyards in Burgundy that were never considered to be particularly good because it was too cold and too yeah too too difficult to get the grapes ripe uh, become uh, particularly interesting like Saint-Romain and things like that so uh, i think we have to look a, at the vineyards from a different perspective uh, in the Mosel one of my favorite vineyard is is uh, is not a classic peace pot uh, uh, gold tröpfchen it's actually higher and it's not really north facing but uh, almost north facing uh, and that would probably 10 years 20 years ago be impossible to get ripe and and today it's exactly what we are looking for so it has its downsides and its positive sides i think in the doru we we find it uh, difficult and uh, it's becoming drier and drier and we are picking the grapes earlier and earlier but in reality, we are used to living with uh, extreme conditions of heat. So for us, it's, it's not so difficult. But uh, but then again, maybe planting vineyards in the uh, Doro Superior is maybe not a good idea. Again, we have to think a little bit and rethink our strategy and what are our priorities. Do you do anything in the sense of pruning or, or working in the vineyards to protect from sunburn, for instance? Yeah, well, one of the things I don't understand is that <clears throat> viticulture in universities seems to still be pushing the vineyards to produce alcohol and alcohol and alcohol. And I don't understand it. One of the things which for me make more sense is actually protecting the grapes from the sunburn. So not taking the leaves out to help the heat to produce alcohol. What we are doing is to avoid it. Uh, so that's one of the things we are doing at the moment. You have a wine on a Norwegian market called uh, Fabelaktig Doro. Most of the wines, especially having Norwegian names, are meant for the the sort of low quality consumer market. But your wine's a bit different. Well, Fabelaktig is um, <clears throat> is is um, I like to compare. We call it um, our Fabelhaft uh, project, um, or in Portuguese we call it Fabulos, because the first one was Fabelhaft for Germany. And uh, I'd like to compare our concept with Coca Cola, but just the other way around. Um, while Coca Cola changes the taste and the sweetness according to the country but they have a very strong logo and they insist on having everywhere in the world the same appearance. I'm stubborn the other way around. The wine is made exactly how I feel and what I want. And I had many discussions with my father 
because um, he used to go to certain restaurants to drink a certain wine. And I, I wanted to understand how did that wine taste? What the hell were they talking about? And my father never was never really good at explaining, describing a wine. But one day, finally, when he was already fed up with my questions, uh, he said, well, you know, the wines in that restaurant, it was good. And I said, yes, I know that. But how was it? He said, well, the more you drank, the better it tasted. And I said, Papi, you are a philosopher. That's incredible. That's really the opposite of modern wines. Modern wines are looking darker, sweeter, heavier, more alcoholic. But you don't want to drink it. And so after one glass, you're fed up. And what you are saying is a totally different philosophy. Fabelhaf was born as a wine that I felt was typical of Dodo, but not very alcoholic, with good acidity, um, not woody or not too woody. Uh, good tannins, good structure, wine that ages well, but the more you drank it, the better it tasted. And and then, of course, the logic was to simplify the appearance and use uh, a local, depending on the country, uh, a label adapted to the country. It should be something funny, it should be something uh, immediate that you would recognize automatically and and you know in the beginning everybody was against my concept and idea everybody thought i was nuts uh, and it was not serious and so on uh, it turns out that it actually works very well but i i want to believe that the success is what is actually in the bottle and not just the label because uh, i don't think that people will keep on buying the same wine if they don't like the wine but of course it the label is is the first connection to the wine. So if you make something that is attractive and that you want to take in your hand, that's already half a sold bottle. And so the concept is, is in the meantime, we have like, I don't know, 50 different labels. Uh, we sell in 40 countries. And I must confess that making the labels is part of the fun. And working with local cartoonists is, is magic. It also making how easy or how difficult it is to make a label for a country tells you a lot about the country. It's, it's interesting how for certain countries it's very easy to make labels and for others it's a nightmare. Talking about market position, it seems to me that the Portuguese wine are growing, especially in the European market, I think. Is that something you agree to? I have no doubt. Uh, <clears throat> Portugal is, is in fashion. Um, because of tourism, because of food, but also because of wine. I have always been against planting Merlot and things like that. Uh, okay, I planted a little bit of Pinot Noir just because I I could not stop myself, myself doing it. But as a rule, I think that is the wrong direction, particularly since Portugal has such a long tradition of uh, many varieties and it's not only many varieties is portugal is a small country but with i would say if, if you take just the north of portugal there's four or five areas which are extremely different from another and then there are other areas which we don't talk about and so in the beginning it was difficult because selling a, a trincadeiro or a rabo do velha to an american was impossible maybe also to a Norwegian. Um, and of course, uh, the Americans changed the world to simplify it. And, and, and that's why Cabernet Merlot became so famous in Chardonnay. 
But I think the world is fed up now with Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. And so what was impossible to sell uh, is now exotic and positive. Just by not being Chardonnay, it's a positive argument for to buy a wine, even if you don't understand what you're buying. But And Portugal is very strong in that. And so Bairrada, I think, is, is an area that uh, was very much hated in Portugal. And these days is, is the fashion area. It, it made some of the worst wines of Portugal, but it's making now some of the most interesting wines of Portugal. It has a great terroir. It has an amazing Baga or Maria Gomes and Bical varieties. And so I think Portugal has a great future in making wines with character, not, not just uh, dull modern wines. You said you planted a bit of uh, Pinot Noir. I think I read somewhere that you tried planting some Riesling as well in the door. It seems a bit counterintuitive to me to plant those cold climate uh, grape um, varieties in I, I would I would go even further and call it stupid. But um, the Riesling I didn't plant. Uh, it was <clears throat> an experimental field that was planted by a grower for Coburn. And when the leaves went out, I happened to be in the right moment at the right time. And the grower wanted to rip out the Riesling, and, uh, and in the end he kept it because of me. Uh, the Pinot Noir we planted in 1999, and uh, yeah, well, I could not not do it. I don't recommend it, and it's stupid, but uh, but having said that, we we have made some fantastic wines. Not every year. Sometimes it's not good uh, because it's it's too hot. But sometimes it's really good. And we have I have planted also a little bit of Pinot Noir in in Bayrada, where there I could see it making sense. If not for a Pinot Noir wine, we have played with buying some Pinot Noir for making sparkling wine, and it seems to work very well with the chalky soils there and the climate. One of the most fascinating things in the world is tea. I wanted to, when I met tea the first time was in San Francisco in Chinatown and I got crazy about Ti Kuan Yin and, um, and I wanted to go to China and I did go to China and I had a big plan of uh, importing Chinese tea then sort of inventing the tea bag which in those days didn't exist much and I wanted to make the green tea popular. Obviously, now everybody knows about green tea, but uh, 30 years ago, it didn't exist in Europe, really. Uh, it was not known. English tea was the thing. And I went to China, but I went, I think, a little bit too early. And uh, it was very communistic and very closed. And so doing business with China was a bit complex for me. And so I gave it up. And uh, a few years ago, six years ago, <clears throat> suddenly... Um, we, we saw some Japanese people making a green tea in Switzerland. And we bought a tea plant, a Camellia sinensis, and, uh, and suddenly it, it crossed my mind that why is Portugal so famous for the Camellias? Uh, the coast in the north of Portugal is famous for the Japoneses. Uh, we call them Japoneses because they came from Japan at the time. And so we planted one plant in the garden in the worst possible place to see what happens. And um, my wife started comparing with us. And, um, and we did uh, more and more experiments and we planted more and more in the garden. And then one day we decided to go for it. And uh, now we have uh, 14,000 plants in north of Porto. So it's about half an hour north of Porto. And uh, this year was the first year where we made actually 15 kilos of tea. 
which is nothing. But uh, what is extraordinary is there seems to be something like terroir going on with tea as well. The whole tea world is fascinating. There's many, many things parallel to the wine. And uh, what we find is that, uh, well, we don't know exactly what we're doing, but the result is a tea with a lot of personality uh, and a lot of character. It's clearly we want to go in the green tea direction. Um, so far, we are doing everything by hand since we are still trying to understand what makes more sense. The other thing which is fascinating is um, we're buying some oolong half-fermented tea from China, from uh, organic planted tea, and we are aging it in Gaia in port barrels. And we call that pipasha, pipe uh, for port, and we keep it uh, six months in the barrel. Uh, it sounds very easy, but it's uh, a lot of work. Uh, but it, again, it's fascinating how uh, different uh, the aging does to the tea. And we are experimenting with ruby, with culiators, uh, with younger or older ports, and with the sediment and, and so on. Um, but it, the funny thing is, our biggest market for the pipasha is uh, China. <laughs> which we never thought it would happen. And it's it's really fascinating to the point that we, we built a, a big warehouse, I mean, not big, but for us big, to have the perfect conditions because the Porto weather is perfect for planting Camellia sinensis, but it's not perfect for drying tea because it's too humid. So now we have uh, perfect insulations to make sure that in the end the, the tea is really dry. And, and of course, it's the dry tea that you keep in the port barrels as, as well. Yes, but, but the port barrels are wet. So we are taking a product which is perfectly dry, putting it into a wet environment. And then, of course, we have to move the barrels and take the tea out and put it back because otherwise one part will be very moist and the other part to dry. And when we pack it at the end, we have to make sure that it's really, really dry so that it doesn't create any mold or anything like that. But now we have all the conditions and uh, it's perfect. I would uh, thank you very much for uh, coming, uh, Dirk Nieport from uh, Nieport Wine in Doro.